I'm your Odd Chapter Reader, Morgan. Yes. Uh, first, I will clarify one thing. Um, we actually have three, there's 38 chapters, not 37 chapters. So pardon me. Um, but what happened in chapter 35 is that Jane found out that Sinjin thinks that they're still going to get married, maybe. And he continues to try to bully her into being his wife. And it forces Jane to admit something to herself, which is that she's still carrying a torch for Rochester and she's got to figure out what's going on with him, given her unanswered letter to Miss Fairfax. She admits that out loud to both Sinjin and herself. And then at one point, Sinjin, he's about to leave for Cambridge and he still hasn't given up. And so he has this moment of like his charm is turned on, all of his faculties and powers of persuasion are about him. And Jane is momentarily swayed. And so she asks God to give her guidance onto what she should do. And she hears Rochester's voice calling out to her across the moors. And she decides that she's got to go find him. India be danged, especially since everyone thinks she's going to die within three months if she goes there. Literally everyone. Yeah, Diana says, you're weak. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do there? Also, Diana says that Jane is pretty. We get the first, like, I think explicit confirmation that Jane is, in fact, um, a hottie. And, um, yeah. The daylight came. I rose at dawn. I busied myself for an hour or two with arranging my things in my chamber, drawers and wardrobe, and the order wherein I should wish to leave them during a brief absence. Meantime, I heard Sinjin quit his room. He stopped at my door. I feared he would knock. No, that slip of piece of paper was passed under the door. I took it up. It bore these words. You left me too suddenly last night. Had you stayed but a little longer, you would have laid your hand on the Christian's cross and the angel's crown. I shall expect your clear decision when I return this day fortnight. Meantime, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit, I trust, is willing, but the flesh, I see, is weak. I shall pray for you hourly. Yours, Sinjin. Do you, what, do, what do you think um, laid your hand on the Christian cross and the angel's crown? Do you think that's like... You would have laid your hand on the Christian cross and the angel's crown. Yeah, I took that as a euphemism for, like, we would have had sex last night, and then you would have had to marry me. Oh! <laughs> I don't think Sinjin's that holy. I like it, but I also dislike it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe if he wore his collar. My spirit, I answered mentally, is willing to do what is right, and my flesh, I hope, is strong enough to accomplish the will of heaven when once that will is distinctly known to me. At any rate, it shall be strong enough to search, inquire, to grope an outlet from this cloud of doubt and find... Okay, I just to go back, new thing on my to-do list, if I get a time machine, is to go back to when this book was published and say... Have them read Sinjin's note and confirm for me if that's a euphemism. Because now I'm running around in circles with it in my head. I'll move on. Christian's cross and the angel's crown. Absolutely, it's a euphemism. They were going (laughs) to... 
He wanted. He wants her. He's horny for her. We've known that all along. He's horny in general. That's so true. Remember the kitchen table? Ugh. Oh my god! And he's like, "Tell me about Rosamond for fifteen minutes and no longer." It's uh, in hindsight, disturbing. This is a very sexy book and also a very unsexy book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, no offense to Charlotte Bronte, but someone pretty fucked up wrote this. <laughs> someone who had a lot of lingering longings. Or I know we're not supposed to diagnose authors based on their texts, right? Because an author is not their text. But Charlotte Bronte's been dead for a while. And I feel like, girl. <laughs> girl needed a vibrate. It was the first of June, yet the morning was overcast and chilly because I live in England. Rain beat fast up my casement. I heard the front door open and St. John pass out. Looking through the window, I saw him traverse the garden. He took the way over the misty moors in the direction of Whitcross. There, he would meet the coach. Few more hours, I shall succeed you in that track, cousin, thought I. I, too, have a coach to meet at Whitcross. I, too, have some some to see and ask after in England before I depart forever. It wanted two hours of breakfast time. I filled the interval in walking softly about my room and pondering the visitation which had given my plans their present bent. I recalled the inward sensation I had experienced, for I could recall it with all its unspeakable strangeness. I recalled the voice I had heard. Again, I questioned whence it came. As vainly as before, it seemed in me, not in the external world. I asked, was it a mere nervous impression? A delusion? I could not conceive or believe it. It was more like an inspiration. The wondrous shock of feeling had come like an earthquake, which shook the foundation of Paul and Silas's prison. It opened the doors of the soul's cell and loosened its bands. It had wakened it out of its sleep, whence it sprang trembling, listening, aghast, then vibrated thrice a cry on my startled ear and in my quaking heart and through my spirit, which neither feared nor shook, but exulted as if in joy over the success of one effort it had been privileged to make, independent of the cumbrous body. Ere many days, I said, as terminated my musings, I will know something of him whose voice seemed last night to summon me. Letters have proved of no avail. Personal inquiry shall replace them. At breakfast, I announced to Diana and Mary that I was going on a journey and should be absent at least four days. Alone, Jane, they asked. Yes, it was to see or hear of news of a friend about whom I had some time been uneasy. They might have said, as I have no doubt they thought, that they had believed me to be without any friends, save them, for indeed I had often said so. But with their true natural delicacy, they abstained from comment, <laughs> except for that Diana asked me if I was sure I was well enough to travel. I looked very pale, she observed. <laughs> I replied that nothing ailed me save anxiety of mind, which I hoped soon to alleviate. It was easy to make my further arrangements, for I was troubled with no inquiries, no surmises. Having once explained to them that I could not now be explicit about my plans, they kindly and wisely acquiesced in the silence with which I pursued them. According to, my, to me, the privilege of free action I should, under similar circumstances, have accorded them. I left the Moore House at 3 o'clock p.m., and soon after 4, I stood at the foot of the signpost of Whitcross, waiting the arrival of the coach, which was to take me to distant Thornfield. Amidst the silence of those solitary roads and desert hills, I heard it approach from a great distance. It was the same vehicle whence, a year ago, I had alighted one summer evening on this very spot. 
How desolate and hopeless and objectless. It stopped as I beckoned. I entered, not now obliged to part with my whole fortune as the price of its accommodation. Once more on the road to Thornfield, I felt like the messenger pigeon flying home. It was a journey of six and thirty hours. I had set out from Whitcross on a Tuesday afternoon, and early on the succeeding Thursday morning, the coach stopped to water the horses at a wayside inn, situated in the midst of scenery whose green hedges and large fields and low pastoral hills, how mild of feature and verdant of hue compared with the stern North Midland moors of Morton, <laughs> met my eye like the lineaments of a once familiar face. Yes, I knew the character of this landscape. I was sure we, we were near my bourne. How far is Thornfield Hall from here? I asked the ostler. Just two miles, ma'am, across the fields. My journey is closed, I thought to myself. Got out of the coach, gave a box I had into the ostler's charge to be kept till I called for it, paid my fare, satisfied the coachman, and was going. The brightening day gleamed on the sign of the inn, and I read in gilt letters, the Rochester Arms. My heart leapt. It was already on my master's very lands. It fell again. The thought struck it. Your master himself may be beyond the British Channel, for aught you know. And then, if he is at Thornfield Hall, towards which you hasten, who besides him is there? His lunatic wife, and you have nothing to do with him. You dare not speak to him or seek his presence. You've lost your labor. You'd better go no further, urged the monitor. Ask information of the people at the inn. They can give you all you seek. They can solve your doubts at once. Go up to that man and inquire if Mr. Rochester be at home. The suggestion was sensible, and yet I could not force myself to act on it. I was so dreaded a reply that would crush me with despair. To prolong doubt was to prolong hope. I might yet once more see the hall under the ray of her star. There was the stile before me, the very fields through which I had hurried, blind, deaf, distracted, with a revengeful fury, tracking and scourging me on the morning I had fled from Thornfield. Ere I well knew what course I was resolved to take, I was in the midst of them. How fast I walked! How I ran sometimes, how I looked forward to catch the first view of the well-known woods, with what feelings I welcomed single trees I knew and familiar glimpses of meadow and hill between them. At last the woods rose, the rookery clustered, dark, a loud cawing broke the morning stillness. Strange delight inspired me. On I hastened. Another field crossed, a lane threaded, and there were the courtyard walls, the back offices, the house itself, the rookery still hid. My first view of it shall be in front, I determined, where its bold battlements will strike the eye nobly at once, and where I can single out my master's very window. Perhaps he will be standing at it. He rises early. Perhaps he is now walking in the orchard or on the pavement in front. Could I but see him? But a moment? Surely in that case I should not be so mad as to run to him. I cannot tell. I am not certain. And if I did, what then? God bless him. What then? Who would be hurt by my one, by my once more tasting life his glance can give me? I rave. Perhaps this moment he is watching the sun rise over the Pyrenees on the tideless sea of the south. I'd coasted along the lower wall of the orchard, turned its angle. There was a gate just there, opening into the meadow between two stone pillars, crowned by stone balls. From behind one pillar, I could peep round quietly at the full front of the mansion. I advanced my head with precaution, desirous to ascertain if any bedroom window blinds were yet drawn up. Battlements, windows, long front, all from the sheltered station were at my command. 
The crows sailing overhead perhaps watched me while I took this survey. I wonder what they thought. They must have considered I was very careful and timid at first, and that gradually I grew more bold and reckless. A peep, then a long stare, then a departure from my niche as I as in a straying out into the meadow, and a sudden stop full of front in front of the great mansion, and a protracted, hearty gaze towards it. What affectation of diffidence was this at first, they might have demanded. What stupid regardlessness now? Here, an illustration reader. A lover finds his mistress asleep on a mossy bank. He wishes to catch a glimpse of her fair face without waking her. He steals softly over the grass, careful to make no sound. He pauses, fancying she has stirred. He withdraws. Not for worlds would he be seen. All is still. He again advances. He bends above her. A light veil rests on her features. He lifts it. Bends lower. Now his eyes anticipate the vision of beauty, warm and blooming and lovely and rest. How hurried was their first glance, but how they fix, how he starts, how he suddenly and vehemently clasps in both arms the form he dared not, a moment since touch with his finger, how he calls aloud a name and drops his burden and gazes on it wildly. He thus grasps and cries and gazes because he no longer fears to waken by any sound he can utter, by any movement he can make. He thought his love slept sweetly. He finds she is stone dead. Goth as hell. <laughs> I looked with timorous joy towards a stately house. I saw blackened ruin. No need to cower behind a gatepost, indeed, to peep up at the chamber lattices, fearing life was astir behind them. No need to listen for doors opening, to fancy steps on the pavement or the gravel walk. The lawn, the grounds were trodden and waste, the portal yawned void. The front was, as I had once seen it in a dream, a shell-like wall, very high and very fragile-looking perforated with painless windows no roof no battlements no chimneys all crashed in i forgot about that dream mm -hmm. and there was the silence of death about it the solitude of a lonesome <laughs> wild <laughs> it's very sad <laughs> <I'm> making <laughs> like myself cry <laughs> Your, like, mournful reading is, like, a little camp. No wonder the letters addressed to people here had never received an answer. As well, dispatch epistles to a vault in a church aisle. The grim blackness of stones told by what fate the hall had fallen. By conflagration. But how kindled? What story belonged to this disaster? What loss besides mortar and marble and woodwork had followed upon it? Had life been wrecked as well as property? If so, whose? Dreadful question. There was no one here to answer it. Not even a dumb sign. Mute token. In wandering round the shattered walls and through the devastated interior, I gathered evidence that the calamity was not of late occurrence. Winter snows, I thought, had drifted through that void arch. Winter rains beaten in at those hollow casements, for amidst the drenched piles of rubbish, spring had cherished vegetation. Grass and weed grew here, and there between the stones and fallen rafters. And oh, where meantime was the hapless owner of this wreck? In what land? 
under what auspices. My eye involuntarily wandered to the gray church tower near the gates, and I asked, Is he with Dammer de Rochester sharing the shelter of his narrow marble house? Some answer must be had to these questions. I could find it nowhere but at the inn, and thither ere long I returned. The host himself brought my breakfast into the parlor. I requested him to shut the door and sit down. I had some questions to ask him. But when he complied, I scarcely knew how to begin. Such horror had I of the possible answers. And yet the, spect the spectacle of desolation I had just left prepared me in a measure for a tale of misery. The host was a respectable-looking middle-aged man. <laughs> All right, weird detail. You know Thornfield Hall, of course, I managed to say at last. Yes, ma'am, I lived there once. Did you? Not in my time, I thought, and you were a stranger to me. I was the late Mr. Rochester's butler, he added. The late, I seemed to have received with full force, the blow I had been trying to evade. The late, I gasped. Is he dead? I mean, the present gentleman isn't Mr. Edward's father, he explained. I breathed again. My blood resumed its flow, fully assured by these words that Mr. Edward, my Mr. Rochester, God bless him wherever he was, was at least alive, was, in short, the present gentleman. Gladdening words. It seemed I could hear all that was to come, whatever the disclosures might be, with comparative tranquility. Since he was not in the grave, I could bear, I thought, to learn that he was at the Antipodes. Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield now, I asked, knowing, of course, what the answer would be, and yet desirous of deferring the direct question as to where he really was. No, ma'am, oh no. No one's living there. I suppose you're a stranger to these parts, or you would have heard what happened last autumn. Thornfield Hall is quite a ruin. It was burnt down just about harvest time. A dreadful calamity. Such an immense quantity of valuable property destroyed. Hardly any of the furniture could be saved. The fire broke out dead of night, and before the engines arrived from Millcut, the building was one mass of flame. It was a terrible spectacle. I witnessed it myself. A dead of night, I murder murmured, muttered. Yes, that was ever the hour of fatality at Thornfield. Was it known how it originated, I demanded. They guessed, ma'am, they guessed. Indeed, I should say it was ascertained beyond a doubt. You are not perhaps aware, he continued, edging his chair a little nearer the table and speaking low, that there was a lady, a, a lunatic, kept in the house. I've heard something of it. She was kept in very close confinement, ma'am. People even for some years were not absolutely certain of her existence no one saw her they only knew by rumor that such a person was at the hall and who or what she was it was difficult to conjecture they said mr edward had brought her from abroad and some believed she had been his mistress but a queer thing happened a year since a very queer thing i feared now to hear my own story i endeavored to recall him to the main fact and this lady, this lady, ma'am, he answered, turned out to be Mr. Rochester's wife. The discovery was brought up in the strangest way. There was a young lady, a governess at the hall, that Mr. Rochester fell in. But the fire, I suggested. I'm coming to that, ma'am. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> you need to hear it from beginning to end. Yeah, this is, this is going to blow your mind. <laughs> Just wait. He's probably been desperately waiting for someone else to tell this. A literal story. stranger who's asking about the hall. Like, he's been waiting a long time. 
Yeah. I'm coming to that man that Mr. Edward fell in love with. The servants say they never saw anybody so much in love as he was. He was after her continually. They used to watch him. Servants will, you know, ma'am. And he set store on her past everything. For all, nobody but him thought her very handsome. She was a little small thing. <laughs> they say, almost like a child. I never saw her myself, but I've heard Leah, the housemaid, tell of her. Leah liked her well enough. Mr. Rochester was about 40, and this governess was not yet 20. And you see, when gentlemen of his age fall in love with girls, they are often like as if they were bewitched. Well, he would marry her. You shall tell me of this part of the story another time, I said, but now I have a particular reason for wishing to hear all about the fire. Was it suspected that this lunatic, Mrs. Rochester, had any hand in it? You've hit it, ma'am. <laughs> it's quite certain that it was her and nobody but her that set it going. She had a woman to take care of her called Mrs. Poole, an able-bodied, an able woman in her line and very trustworthy, but for one fault, a fault common to a deal of them nurses and matrons, she kept a private bottle of gin by her and now and then took a drop over much. It is excusable, for she had a hard life of it, but still it was dangerous, for when Mrs. Poole was fast asleep after the gin and water, the mad lady, who was cunning as a witch, would take the keys out of her pocket, let herself out of her chamber, and go roaming about the house, doing any wild mischief that came into her head. They say she had nearly burnt her husband in his bed once, but I don't know about that. However, on this night, she set fire first to the hangings of the room next to her own. Then she got down to a lower story and made her way to the chamber that had been the governess's. She was like as if she knew somehow how matters had gone on and had a spite at her. And she kindled the bed there. But there was nobody sleeping in it, fortunately. The governess had run away two months before, and for all Mr. Rochester sought her as if she had been the most precious thing he had in the world, he never could hear a word of her, and he grew savage, quite savage on his disappointment. He never was a mild man, but he got dangerous after he lost her. He would be alone, too. He sent Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper, away to her friends at a distance, but he did it handsomely, for he settled an annuity on her for life, and she deserved it, for she was a very good woman. Miss Adele, a ward he had, was put to school. He broke off acquaintance with all gentry and shut himself up like a hermit at the hall. What? Did he not leave England? Leave England? No, bless you. No, he would not cross the doorstones of the house except at night when he walked just like a ghost about the grounds and in the orchard as if he had lost his senses, which it was in my opinion he had. For a more spirited, bolder, keener gentleman than he was before that midge of a governess crossed him, you never saw, ma'am. He was not a man given to wine or cards or racing as some are, and he was not so very handsome, but he had a courage and a will of his own, if ever man had. I knew him from a boy, you see, and for my part I have often wished that Miss Eyre had been sunk in the sea before she came to Thornfield Hall. Yeah, he was a great guy. <laughs> Super great. <laughs> it's fine that he kept a lunatic wife. It's cool. It's cool. It's fine. 
Then Mr. Roger was... Rochester was at home when the fire broke out. Yes, indeed was he. And he went up to the attics when all was burning above <coughs> and below and got the servants out their beds and helped them down himself and went back to get his mad wife out of her cell. And then they called out to him that she was on the roof where she was standing, waving her arms above the battlements and shouting out till they could hear her a mile off. I saw her and heard her with my own eyes. She was a big woman and had long black hair. You could see it streaming against the flames as she stood. I witnessed, and several more witnessed, Mr. Rochester ascend through the skylight on the roof. We heard him call, Bertha. We saw him approach her, and then, ma'am, she yelled and gave a spring, and the next minute, she smashed on the pavement. Dead? Dead. I dead, as the stones <laughs> on which her brains and blood were scattered. Oh, God. In fact, that's what Jane said. <laughs> Good God. You may well say so, ma'am. It was frightful. He shuddered. And afterwards, I urged. Well, ma'am, afterwards, the house was burnt to the ground. There are only some bits of wall standing now. Were any other lives lost? No, perhaps it would have been better if there had. What do you mean? Poor Mr. Edward, he ejaculated. A little, I little thought he ever to have seen it. Some say it was just judgment on him for keeping his first marriage secret and wanting to take another wife while he had one living but i pity him for my part you said he men just circle the wagons don't they <laughs> they do i mean they're just keeping the patriarchy alive it's totally fine that he tricked that not yet 20 girl child totally cool you said he was alive i exclaimed yes yes he is alive but many think he had better be dead why? How? My blood was again running cold. Where is he? I demanded. Is he in England? Aye, aye, he's in England. He can't get out of England, I fancy. He's a fixture now. What agony was this? And the man seemed resolved to protract it. He is stone blind, he said at last. Yes, he is stone blind as Mr. Edward. I had dreaded worse. I had dreaded he was mad. I summoned strength to ask what had caused this calamity. It was his own courage, and a body may say his kindness in a way, ma'am. He wouldn't leave the house till everyone else was out before him. As he came down the great staircase at last, after Mrs. Rochester had flung herself from the battlements, there was a great crash. All fell. He was taken out from under the ruins alive, but sadly hurt. A beam had fallen in such a way as to protect him partly, but one eye was knocked out, and one hand so crushed that Mr. Carter, the surgeon, had to amputate it directly. The other eye inflamed, he lost his sight of that also. He is now helpless, indeed, blind and a cripple. Where is he? Where does he now live? At Ferndean, a manor house on a farm he has about 30 miles off. Quite a desolate spot. Who is with him? Old John and his wife. He would have none else. He is quite broken down, they say. Have you any sort of conveyance? We have chaise, ma'am. Very handsome chaise. Let it be got ready instantly, and if your postboy can drive me to Ferndean before dark this day, I'll pay both you and him twice the hire you usually demand. You know, <laughs> this is my fourth or fifth time reading it, and I don't think I have ever really luxuriated in hear an illustration 
reader. A lover finds his mistress asleep. Like, and she's talking about a house and like that whole beautiful made up scene of like, I'm not gonna wake Sleeping Beauty. Oh shit, she dead. And like, that's how you feel about a house. Like, ugh. Man, people in these books, in the romance uh, canon, super into real estate. Uh, you know what? It is fucking true, though. Like, it's like, uh, you know, we started this project talking about the Rochester versus the Darcy, mm-hmm. but maybe it's the Thornfield versus the Pemberley. Maybe that's part of it. Also, like, I don't remember ever having been so struck by the gruesome details of what transpired. And I think, you know, likewise with the Sleeping Beauty story. There's something about reading things out loud that makes them feel more real. Yeah, I always remember that Bertha threw herself from the battlements, but I don't ever remember anybody saying that she got splattered on the pavement. Yeah, and talking about her brains. Or like Rochester like popped an eye out and crushed a hand and inflamed the other eye. Yeah, I knew he went blind, but I don't remember it being the gory. No, and I don't remember him having an, a hand amputated. Why do we sanitize it in our memories? I really think there is something about reading th- and it's it's trite, right? But reading things out loud, like saying things makes them more real hmm. and therefore like even more vivid in our minds. Yeah, it makes them tangible in some way. Yeah. Like I've I've you know, you shared that gory detail with me. Mm. Mhm. I think about it with true crime podcasters a lot. You know, whatever they have to come to the moment of, like, describing a crime scene that they've probably Mm -hmm. only read about. They've maybe even seen pictures of it. Mm -hmm. But they all hesitate, kind of, at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good observation. I wonder what Charlotte Bronte, she, like, vividly imagined it. I mean... She says it so, like, directly, but I I think that's, like, you know, a respectable middle-aged man would be kind of direct about it. But I don't know if it's like indicative of someone who has seen something like that or someone who's never seen anything like that. That's a good question. But I like as uh, he is a middle-aged man, but he is also a man who like really dearly delights in this gossip that he's imparting. Yeah. And so there's almost like um a flavor of titillation here. Mm-hmm. Dead eye, dead as the stones on which her brains and blood were scattered, and like having an eye popped out. Like he, I'm sure those things happened because the book says they. Also, the way he describes like the love affair is quite salacious. Right, and so I think like we're also dealing with a human being who is like disconnected. Yes. And therefore, the details themselves function as a kind of titillation. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting that Charlotte Bronte, instead of like yada yada-ing it, has like a full third-hand account of what we read ourselves. And I think does speak to like – almost maybe it even serves as like a – a meta counter argument to how some people might perceive the story. Hmm. Because I, I also think it's interesting that it's considered salacious. Their age difference is considered salacious in this book. Right. And like, mm-hmm. ugh, he obviously wasn't in his right mind. She's like a child. Right. And I think it's 
startling. Like, it serves as a lesson to me that, like, the things that I have read, that I connected with, that I was rooting for and pulled through are actually quite problematic. And it's interesting that that perspective is included in the text. Like, I think it's rare. I know it's rare for romance novels to problematize the romance they're describing. And yet that's what happens. I mean, let's be fair. Like, this problematization, like, he he says that Rochester's been bewitched. Like, Rochester doesn't have agency over the child bewitching him. Right. Which is, like, not great. I, I, I do say that this does feel novel in the sense that it is having a third party problem, problematize the age at all. Yeah. But, like, it's definitely, like, she's sassy, she wild, she's done something. Yeah. Not, like, Mr. Rochester's gross for desiring a child. But also, like, Sinjin's, you know, their age difference is half what it is between her and Rochester. Yeah, this is a crazy chapter. This is a crazy chapter. I think it's so... I. And I think it would be so fun to write this, to like look back on the romance novel I've written and be like, how is this respectable middle-aged man going to describe what I have written? Once again, the poetry of, of finding the house and in ruin. And it's so well done because I've read it before and I was also like taken up in like the hope of like, maybe it won't be like that this time. <laughs> maybe it won't be as bad as I remember. And it is. And like when she realizes it's been like like a snow has come through the empty windows, like it's been a while. And Jane hearing Rochester calling out to her, we have to, I, I feel compelled to believe that it is a literal supernatural experience. And was she only open to it after having her orgasm from Sinjin touching her head, which is kind of like a perfect metaphor for the part we've just read. She had to open herself up through her experience through Sinjin with Sinjin in order to hear Rochester. I also love that she describes that as the 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 name being called out to her, not as a miracle, but as the best that nature could do. Yeah, I love that. I do too. I think that is both so eloquently um understating the thing because obviously it's a fucking miracle like what the fuck are you talking about but like she's in an audience where no one else would describe it that way yeah well two more chapters left who knows what's gonna happen now bring it on home doggies (laughs) with that loosen your jeans but never your airs Mwah. mwah